Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m., and you can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. Again, that's 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. If you're familiar with the area, we're just 2.2 miles north of the old Jefferson Proving Ground entrance right there on Highway 421. I want you to know, though, this morning that that we would love to have you come join us in person Sundays at 1030. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. This morning, as you're listening, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you're able. I encourage you to take notes if you can. Try to write down the main points that you catch from today's message. Write down the Bible references you hear so that you can read over them again later. And be sure to jot down anything else that you hear this morning that you think is important or might be something that you'd like to study further. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it's my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Have you ever heard any of these phrases? It's not the destination, it's the journey. Or it's not about where you're going, but how you get there. Or have you ever said, let's take the scenic route? Maybe you could think of some others, but the fact is we all recognize that important things do happen even when we're between destinations. Memories are still made in those distances between point A and point B. Lessons are taught and learned sometimes on the road to somewhere else. That got me to thinking about roads in the Bible. Specifically, things that happened on roads in the Bible. As it turns out, Jesus didn't just perform a miracle in city number one and then hang out in the tour bus until he's ready to perform in city number two. Jesus did all kinds of things while he was on his way from somewhere to somewhere else. Many of these things are pretty well-known events, but I wonder, did we realize that Jesus did these things while he was actually on his way to some other destination? We have a tendency to think things like, well, once I get where I'm going, or once I finish what I'm working on, or once I get to a certain point in life. But some of Jesus' greatest lessons were taught while he was on the road, while he was on his way somewhere else to do something else. So we're going to set apart the next eight weeks to tell some of Jesus' stories from the road. Each week, we'll tell the story, we'll point out the road, and we'll really try to learn the lessons that Jesus was teaching in each of those events. And maybe we can learn, rather than waiting until we, quote-unquote, get there, to be ready to jump into action, to help, to serve, to teach, and to reach, no matter where we are, always being ready. So let's get started. I'm doing my best to do these in chronological order. Uh, So our first road story turns out to be found in John chapter 4. Early in his ministry, Jesus performed miracles. He had disciples. People were following him. He also did things like driving sacrifice salesmen and money changers out of the temple with a DIY whip. He taught a Pharisee about the new birth and entrance into the kingdom of God. 
And pretty quickly, more people were coming to Jesus than to John the Immerser. As we come to the very beginning of John chapter 4, we learn that the Pharisees recognized that this Jesus character was gaining even more disciples than John. Jesus was on the Pharisees' radar, we might say. And John tells us in this chapter that because Jesus realized that he was on the Pharisees' radar, he left Judea and went to Galilee. We can say now with confidence that it was not yet Jesus' time to die. And had Jesus stayed in Judea at this time, perhaps the Pharisees and others would have plotted something along those very lines. What's interesting at this point, however, is that while John tells us that Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee, the text does not take us right to Galilee. Instead, we're told that on his way from Judea to Galilee, Jesus stopped in Samaria, in the city of Sychar, and he sat down by a well because he was wearied from his journey. So beginning in John chapter 4, verse 7, John tells us the story of what happened that day when Jesus essentially pulled to the side of the road and spent a little time at a rest stop. And so this morning's message is called Rest Stop Refreshment. This morning, I think many of us might say that spiritually we are wearied from our journey as Jesus was from his physical journey. Well, I've got good news. This morning, we're going to see that we actually possess the spiritual refreshment that Jesus talks about at this rest stop in John chapter 4. As Christians, we actually have inside our bodies that which can give us true satisfaction, that which produces wonderful things in our lives, and that which results in eternal life. Now, if that sounds refreshing to you, good. That's my goal today, to refresh us in the Lord. So check out John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And remember, Jesus is on his way to Galilee from Judea, and he's pulled off to rest at Jacob's well in Sychar. John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The way that this plays out is very interesting. It's almost like a parable being lived out in real life. Jesus often told these stories, these parables, where it was just that, a story that was made up, but it would be about something physical and very understandable, but the meaning would be spiritual and profound and often multi-layered. In this roadside conversation, Jesus is literally tired and thirsty. He, he needs to sit down and he likes some water. And we've got this woman who is at a real well with her real water pot and capable of drawing some real water up from that well to really quench Jesus' thirst. However, this physical setup quickly turns into this profound spiritual lesson. 
If you analyzed how things took place here, it would sound like a parable. But this is actually a real event from Jesus' life. Now, I say all of that to point out how Jesus handled this situation. He's on his way to Galilee. He's tired. He's thirsty. So he stops at a well, but he uses his circumstances to teach. Ultimately, he's using his circumstances to reach. He's reaching out to this woman in need, a Samaritan woman who needs this living water that is a gift from God that he, Jesus, is able to give. Now, I think there's a rule or something that you can't tell this story without pointing out the fact that women were essentially second-class citizens in this time and in this culture. And many Jewish men wouldn't even be caught talking to their wives in public, much less a stranger. Very odd, I know. And added to that, there is this deep-seated uh, mutual disgust between the Jews and the Samaritans. We don't have time to get into the whole history behind this, but suffice it to say, Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds, and therefore they consider them unclean. Jews would go home and bathe if they had to spend time in the presence of, of a Samaritan. And needless to say, Jews weren't inclined to strike up a conversation like this with a Samaritan or to ask them for help, and they certainly would not have shared a drinking vessel with them. So why was Jesus talking to this woman? Well, it's true that Jesus wasn't one to abide by societal norms when those norms were morally wrong, so Jesus wasn't going to be sexist or racist and ignore this woman or behave like he was disgusted by her physical presence. But that's really just an explanation for why Jesus didn't refuse to talk to her. Why did Jesus actually decide to talk to her? Well, we have two options. And the right answer could be one or the other or both. Option number one, perhaps it was just simply that Jesus was tired and thirsty. Option number two, perhaps it was that Jesus had some important spiritual truth that this woman needed to hear. Well, I believe that it's both. First of all, nothing in the text says the woman never gave him a drink, and nothing says Jesus wasn't actually thirsty. I believe Jesus really wanted a drink. He was a real man. He had really been on a journey and was really tired. And secondly, as soon as the woman responds to his request for a drink, Jesus goes straight into a statement about living water. He was ready to use this opportunity to stir this woman's soul so that she might see her need for this living water. So again, the reason I'm saying all this is to point out that Jesus is using his current set of circumstances on his way to Galilee, stopped at a well to rest, tired and thirsty, to strike up and guide a conversation toward much more important spiritual matters. So what is the living water? Well, I would confidently submit to you that the living water is the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Scripture says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Right? Verse 39 says in no uncertain terms here that Jesus was speaking of the Spirit. The Spirit which would later be given to those who believe Jesus is the Christ. We know from Acts chapter 2 verse 38 that the Holy Spirit is given to those who are baptized into Christ. Those who are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But look also at what Jesus said in John chapter 7 verse 37. 
If anyone's thirsty, he said, let him come to me and drink. Sounds very similar to John 4, 14, where Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. And now check out what Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He said, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So having believed in Christ at our conversion, aka when we are baptized into Christ, scripture says we drink of the spirit. As Christians, this living water that we drank and that uh, continues to have effect in our lives, specifically the Holy Spirit, is inside us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? The living water that we drink is the Holy Spirit who is in us and who, as John 7 says, flows from our innermost beings. The living water in John chapter 4 cannot be something else. It is the Holy Spirit. And I said earlier that as Christians, we actually have inside our bodies that which can give us three things. And number one, true, genuine, lasting satisfaction. Number two, wonderful fruit uh, produced in our lives. And number three, eternal life. So I want to take just a few minutes to look at each of these truths and to discuss how this can spiritually refresh us. First of all, let's look at how the living water provides true satisfaction. Jesus said that those who come to him and drink of the living water will never thirst again. And the living water truly quenches thirst. It's not, not a temporary thing. It's a forever thing. Living water equals problem solved. So the question is, does the Holy Spirit quench thirst? Well, Isaiah seems to have prophesied that the Holy Spirit was going to do just that, that it was sent for that very purpose. Isaiah 44, verse 3, thus says the Lord, right? Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. God said here that he would send water for those who were thirsty. And that second line specifies that he was speaking here of his spirit. Clearly, the spirit was sent to satisfy or, or to quench the thirst of those who were spiritually parched. So what kinds of spiritual thirst do we have that we might expect the living water to quench? Well, we have a need, or you might call it a thirst, for the love of God. The Holy Spirit quenches that thirst. The Holy Spirit provides that true satisfaction. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Did Paul just say that God's love, meaning not only his affection, but also his care and direction and provision, has been poured out like a refreshing fountain through the Holy Spirit who was given to us? Church, these are no coincidences. We need God's love, and the Holy Spirit quenches that thirst. But we have other needs or thirsts as well. Every human being realizes a need for hope. You want to hear something really refreshing? Scripture says that the Holy Spirit enables us to abound in hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us hope like the world hopes something good might happen. The Holy Spirit has the power to cause us to abound in hope, or we might say to overflow with hope. When we have the living water that God gives through Christ, guys, there isn't a millisecond of our lives that we are without hope. One more thing. Does every man and woman have a need for strength? I'm not talking about muscles to move heavy objects. I'm talking about the mental and spiritual fitness to handle heavy situations. Surely every man, woman, and child thirsts for strength of some kind. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. We could go on and on, but suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. the living water, quenches every spiritual thirst we might have. Next, let's look at how the living water creates wonderful produce. Jesus said the water that he gives will become a well of water springing up, right? There's action here. That's a, that's a verb, right? Springing up. How does the Holy Spirit become a well that springs up in our lives? Well, goodness gracious, we could spend all day thinking of ways, but I think one of the clearest pictures of the Spirit springing up in the lives of those who have this living water is found in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 16, Paul wrote, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In verse 19, he said, The deeds of the flesh are evident, and he goes on to list several of them. But in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Jonah's self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Do you ever feel like you should do more or, or be more? Start right here. We need to access that living water. I think many of us struggle here because we never go and draw from the well. I mean, let's think about this for a second. Can a person be refreshed just knowing that the well exists? Or do they have to go and access that water, draw from that well? I think the answer is clear. It's obvious. And I think if we'd slow down and give this some thought, we all want to be people who have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love. You know, we'd all like to be that person who is known for their sincere and sacrificial love. Joy. We'd love to be that person with the pep in their step, their chin up, and changing others' attitudes for the better because of our joy. Peace. We'd all love to be the person whose peace doesn't depend on their daily or even hourly situation. We'd like to have the peace that life's storms can't damage. Patience. We'd all love to be the person with genuine patience. I don't believe anybody honestly enjoys flying off the handle, upsetting others, and acting selfish. Kindness. I know we'd all love to be that person who brings warmth and comfort to a room because of our consistent kindness. Goodness. I believe we all want to be good. We'd all love to be the person who quietly stands above the status quo. We'd like to dwell on that which is good in the eyes of God and do that which is good in the eyes of God and be that which is good in the eyes of God. Faithfulness. I think it's obvious that nobody likes to let anybody down. Not our friends, not our family, and certainly not God. We want to be people who are faithful. Gentleness. As Christians, we want to be people who are surprisingly gentle. People who make an impression by our ability to handle situations differently than the rest of the world. And self-control. This is a tough one to get a handle on, but I guarantee you, nobody wants to admit that they can't control themselves. I guess the question then is, are you allowing the living water to spring up? 
is the Holy Spirit, this living water flowing out from your innermost being. No one else can make the Spirit do that in your life. That's an issue for you to address. But let me tell you, if you will, it will be so refreshing. And then finally, let's take a very quick look at how the living water creates an eternal result. At the very end of John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus said, The water that he gives will become in us a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice, the living water itself is not eternal life. Instead, the living water results in eternal life. So, if the living water is indeed the Holy Spirit, we should see the Holy Spirit making eternal life possible. We should see the Holy Spirit resulting in eternal life. The Holy Spirit existing in someone resulting in eternal life. Look at Titus chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. Paul writes to Titus here. He said, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom, okay, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Guys, this text shows us that the Holy Spirit, whom we receive through Christ, performs specific works and has a specific effect in the lives of those who have received him, and the final result is eternal life. Paul said it more concisely in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. He said, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Where did the one who sows the Spirit get this eternal life? Scripture says, from the Spirit. If you're wearied from your journey in this life, I hope this message is encouraging. Church, we possess the ultimate spiritual refreshment. If you are a Christian listening to this message, he is living inside your body. Are you struggling with contentment and satisfaction? Only the living water can give us true satisfaction. Do you feel like you should do or be more? Only the living water produces the most wonderful things in our lives and makes us who and what we ought to be. Do you want to live beyond the grave? Well, only the living water results in eternal life. As we finish things up here this morning, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts whatsoever, that you would go to live with him forever? Do you know for certain that he's gonna let you into heaven? Can a person even know? Well, I've got good news. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, that's good news. I want to know that I have eternal life. Now, let's back up just a little bit. And I want to show you a reality that's in the scriptures that we need to deal with. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Scripture says there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to pay. Who did this passage of scripture say was gonna pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed, right? Number one, those who do not know God. And secondly, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God, I hope you do. But let me ask you this, have you obeyed the gospel? In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? I want to read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? Did you find the three parts of the gospel there? When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions you have. We would appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, keep listening, and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a moment. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. 
If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church at one of our Sunday services. We meet at 1030 a.m., again, 1030 each and every Sunday morning at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. That's 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, just call 812-273-1518. That's 812-273-1518. Or you can send us a message directly from our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Jesus created his church as a body of people. His church is a family made up of sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have been called to meet together regularly. The pattern that we see from the church in the Bible is that they met every Sunday. So if you're able, come meet with us next Sunday right here at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.